welcome to Cinemakers. This is episode 35, Doodlebug from 1997 and following from 1998, both directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Chris Podcasts. There you go. Yep. And welcome to the second official wave of Cinemakers. We tackled the seemingly never-ending, but also wonderful, Steven Soderbergh's catalog. Now we are going headfirst into the 10 films, plus a little short, by Christopher Nolan. So, we welcome to the show. Mike and I are here from the whole... You guys know me and Mike. But, new to the show, you might know him from Cage Club or Keanu Club or Watch a Throne. Or, you might know him from his own podcast, Now and Again. We have Chris Podcast, or Chris Mattiello, or whatever you want. Are, you, are we saying your last name? Because I feel like it's right for you to dodge your last name on the internet to sort of separate your, like... I bet you've eaten plastic fruit before, like, from separating that from your doctor life. Right. But I feel like if fellow doctors listen to our podcasts, it's almost like you've cracked the case. Uh, You can know who I am. Yeah, if someone wants to dox me, I'm sure they have other ways of finding it out. (laughs) I guess I'm a co-host for this run now. Thus, You sure are. Thus the, I'm sure, um, edited out long pause between the names I was expecting to be introduced. Oh, that's staying in. Okay, good. We did warn you that we're like, you're going to intro every third episode, just like Tobin did for Soderbergh, but we did not tell you, hey, also say your name at the top of the end. So now, when we sign out, make sure you say your name. Yeah, that's why it sounds like I'm asking a question when I say my name. (laughs) (laughs) I read the question intonation as, should I say my last name question mark or my fake last name question mark? Oh, no, no. It It was mostly just, do I say this or am I lagging via my new internet, so... I'm happy to be here, regardless. Um, Christopher Nolan, yay. I just want to say I'm recovering from food poisoning. Um, So I'm glad this is a concept in some movies. The concept is good, but I'm glad this is some movies that I don't have to pretend to be enthusiastic about. Like if this was like Dark Knight or something, I'd feel really bad. But uh, it's just following. So uh, happy to be here drinking some ginger ale. Yay. This feels like, and I don't know, it's not nearly as good as, but we were talking, I don't know if it was a Cinemaker's mic or if it was a Keanu Club or what, but it feels sort of like how the Wachowskis wanted to make The Matrix. They were basically told, hey, make Bound first. So it feels like here, Christopher Nolan has like these probably ambitious ideas like Memento or whatever, and he's just a broke recent college grad and they're like okay we're not gonna give you financing but make a movie go win awards and then you can go make the movie you want to make so it feels like you can sort of see the kernels of what he's gonna do but it's not at all what he i sure has the ambition that he wants to do yeah i think this movie is very telling to what he's going to become like i feel like there's a lot of idea i think there's too many ideas for this particular movie but you can see where he's going there's so many ideas and things in following that are going to come up again and reoccur and be part of his style and his way of storytelling and all that stuff. And that was something coming back to it this time that I liked that I was looking at and looking for and actually found, which was cool. This is is probably like the fourth time I've watched this in its entirety. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah. I remember like the first time I watched it, I think I watched it twice because it's so short. You know, it's only like 75 minutes. It's 70. It's 70 exactly. Okay. So the first time I saw it, I watched it twice. I watched it probably like, I don't know, a couple years ago, maybe like before the last Batman movie that he did. So it was quite a while ago. And then for this screening, uh, for this podcast. So yeah, this is my fourth time watching it. 
so what I found out before we started recording is that, Mike, you and I have both seen all ten of his movies, but Chris has missed two of them. I guess one was probably by choice because you knew you were going to do this, or did you not see Dunkirk for another reason? So I don't know if you want to get into our feelings on Nolan yet or not. Sure, let's do it. I've never really disliked a Christopher Nolan movie. Okay. And I would say I like all of his movies. In fact, I really like a lot of his movies. That said, for some reason, every time it's like, hey, there's a new Christopher Nolan movie, I'm just not excited for it. And I usually don't see it until way later. And this happened with Interstellar. I saw it maybe like three years after it came out. And I loved it. It's like, why did I wait so long for this? And the same thing happened with Dunkirk. It's just like, I wasn't excited to see it. I think it's just his genre pictures are in genres that I don't have any interest in. So I just sleep on them like an idiot. And I don't learn. I'm actually very excited when I see one of his movies are coming out or like he's got a new project in the works. Like he's pretty unique. I feel like mostly he's doing his own thing. I try to see his movies in theaters when they come out. The only movie I've seen once is Insomnia, but I really like his work. I like his style and as like a person, I like to listen to him, you know, talk about film. And so I'm really excited. There was a point in my life where I would have said that Memento was like my favorite movie of all time. But, like, at that age, I also would have said, like, Donnie Darko was my second favorite movie. I think (laughs) I still have that memory of, like, everything that I must have liked at that age was dumb and bad. Because most of it was. So I just, I, I think I just have this, like, fear of revisiting a lot of his movies or, like, going into them with any kind of expectations. Even though, like, everything from, I guess, let's not say Memento and let's not say Insomnia because I don't remember them well enough. But everything from Batman to Interstellar, every single thing in that block I have loved. So I'm just an idiot. I, I just sleep on him for some reason, even though I, <laughs> I genuinely love him and think he's one of the best working directors today. I still just don't get excited when I hear there's a new Nolan movie. What I really like about having Chris on here is that this is like the opposite of Soderbergh and Tobin for two different reasons. Number one, Tobin loves Dunkirk, but does not like most, if at all, any of Christopher Nolan's other movies. Yeah, I think he likes this one. I think this is the other one that he likes. Such a film snob. Tobin, I know you're probably listening, but just like, enjoy Batman. Just try to enjoy Batman, because Batman rules. And then number two, we had Soderbergh, who's basically like, I'm going to go do weird things. I'm going to go make movies that you might not want to see, but I'm just like screwing around. And Christopher Nolan's like, no, I'm going to take my time and I'm going to make like a $200 million movie and people are going to love it. It's just like, we didn't choose it because it's the opposite of Soderbergh. In fact, we chose it because, number one, we want to see his movies again. And number two, we would like to sort of boost the numbers of cinemakers. And we feel like a more popular, because he is one of the most popular directors today, like alongside maybe like Tarantino. He's probably the most popular director who's like made a bunch of movies recently, I think, probably. Those are the real reasons. But it also works out that like he's kind of the opposite of Soderbergh, except they both make great movies. Yeah, it's it's weird. He's he's a full-on auteur in the way, you know, maybe even more so, I think, than Soderbergh and just in the scale of his films, you know? I just feel like his movies are just so much bigger just in budget. And I feel like even though he's a modern filmmaker, there's something old school about him. Like, I just feel like he approaches movie making in a very different way than Soderbergh, but also succeeds extremely well the way they, that he does things. So it's cool to have such great filmmakers doing such different types of work. And as we record this, I am sort of slowly kind of sort of working on redoing my 100 favorite movies list. And it makes me 
feel sort of weird and like I'm being lazy when I have six or seven of like a certain director's movies yeah. in my top hundred. But it's also like the movies he makes are like it feels like they're being made for me. Like yes, it feels like oh you just like the big movies, but it's also like no, but like they're great and I do love them. Like it's just it's it's a strange like him and Tarantino, he and Tarantino both they make these movies that everybody loves, but also I love. Like they mean something to me. I don't love following, but I like that this exists. That this gave him the recognition so that just two years later he's able to make Memento which like Chris I've only seen I think one time and I remember really liking and having my mind blown but that was also literally thousands of movies ago so I don't remember how much I like it but I'm assuming I liked it probably a whole lot He's a fascinating guy because his career is such a fascinating arc. It's cool that we get to see this movie he made for $6,000. And then he made Memento, which blew every 14-year-old's mind in 2000. And, like, honestly opened the door to a lot of those people to explore more film and not just movies. Then he did... He fell into that trap that I think a lot of those direct... We're seeing that now with a lot of directors who make great movies and then get drafted by Marvel or Disney in general. And it's like, here's a big budget pick. And then he did Insomnia, which like kind of wasn't his thing. And then all of a sudden they just hand him the keys to Batman in a pre-superhero world where like everything is a superhero movie now. They just hand him the keys to fucking Batman and he runs with it and he never looks back. And it's so fascinating and cool to see how he's evolved throughout his career and the stuff that he's stuck with as uh, a real staple from the beginning in a lot of ways. And I feel like some movie snobs out there, their heads are going to fucking cave in when I say this, but I feel like he's the closest thing today that we have to like the Spielberg of the 80s. Interesting. I thought you were going to compare him maybe, and maybe it's just this movie, but like I thought you might say something like Hitchcock. It's like he's very clearly going for Hitchcock here in that sort of mean little tight little thriller sort of thing but I guess he's he kind of maybe like he sort of branches into two and I feel like he sort of has that crime and suspense genre or angle always in his like rear view but he also goes into that sort of like fantastical family style but not really family focused blockbuster type of movie I guess like Spielberg right you're right you got to remember that Spielberg's one of his earliest movies was also Duel, which is very different, much grittier than the rest of his stuff. And um, one of the reasons I say that is I feel like he does genre picks really well. He does big budget stuff really well. And he is also really skilled at extracting emotion from the audience, which I think that 80s Spielberg, late 70s Spielberg, I don't know if anyone did that better ever. Like modern Spielberg is, is out of the question, but like that era of Spielberg does a lot of what no one can do now. I agree. I think he's just got a great understanding of film language, you know, like the masters do. And he doesn't make me feel the way Spielberg does, but he uses similar techniques, I suppose, to make me feel the way he wants me to. There's sort of few Christopher Nolan movies where I come out the other end feeling warm and fuzzy, you know, but I feel like he succeeds in getting me where he wants to emotionally, and that is trickery, and that is of the best type, too. And yeah, I totally feel like he definitely deserves to be like, yeah, you could say Spielberg and Nolan in the same sentence. Sure. What's kind of cool, too, is like, I came to know him also as sort of like the mind-bending filmmaker. Like, it was, you know, when Memento came out, I was sort of... At I think we were all kind of over M. Night Shyamalan and the twist ending was getting kind of passe at that time and sort of the fractured structure was getting a little stale. Maybe for me, I liked when Tarantino does it and, and certain people can pull it off. But it's interesting how we sort of combined the two here with Nolan and you get 
sort of a refresh of all of that. Like he makes these sort of twisty, turny, revelatory films that land for me. Like when we get there with the prestige, like there's several moments where I'm like, oh yeah, like the reveal is working. And I think it's just crazy. Like he happened to be working for Warner Brothers at a time when Batman, the franchise for the movies was really in the dumps and his style and his themes and all of his like, you know, abilities. They really transferred to that franchise really well. And it just like redefined Batman still to this day Batman is in the shadow of Christopher Nolan so it's just really cool how he's very mainstream but like that's cool like he also appeals to my sort of more independent types of uh, films that I like also so it's cool it's like the best of both worlds with him well, I think that's the, sort of like what Chris was saying about the genre pictures that he makes. Like, it's not like he does an indie movie and then gets drafted to do, like, it's not like he does Safety Not Guaranteed and then goes and does Jurassic World or whatever. Like, whatever, or Fantastic Four, or whatever, Colin Trevorrow, or like, whatever th- that path now that, you know, Chris was saying before, like, he's making still $200 million, $300 million movies, whatever, but they are sort of weirdly specific movies that I feel like if he wasn't behind... People wouldn't have gone to see Interstellar the way that they did, but because his name is there, because people, like, trust him in a way that I don't think they trust. Like, I don't think uh, this might be way too, like, you know, push up the glasses, like, snobby. But I feel like the general public doesn't really know or doesn't really care about who directs movies most of the time. But I feel like he is one of the few people that people care about and that it doesn't matter what he does, whether he does a World War II movie, a hard, hard, hard sci-fi movie, or a Batman movie. Like, people are going to go see it because they... They know that he has a spectacle, that he has a style that works for them. And I think it's just really uncommon in today's world to be able to sort of make the kind of movies that you want to make, but at the same time, have people go see them and also have $200 million to make them. It's a weird like trifecta of things that I don't think exists to many people just because like they don't have the track record and the skills and the desires that he does, I don't think. I think his movies force you to think, but they don't challenge you, which makes them palatable across multiple ways of going to the movies and watching film. Yeah, I also think to a degree he has mass appeal, like in a way, like what Chris was saying, like he's not necessarily overtly complex, but he he makes you think, but he doesn't really make you strain. Yeah, that's a better way to put it. There's something kind of rewarding about that when you're watching a movie. What I do like about this, because I don't really like following all that much, if we're sort of done, I guess, for now, if we could sort of transition into talking about this movie. I don't like this movie that much. I feel like, you know, Mike, we just recorded, and I don't know when we're actually going to release this, so this is not going to be timely at all, but we recorded the Burning Plane episode for Watch of Throne, and that was told out of order, and it sort of overcomplicated things. Here, it overcomplicates things, but I feel like it works better here because I think the story, like I read the Wikipedia summary of what the plot is here, and it's really kind of a straightforward story. And what's actually really cool, what I didn't know about until I was uh, just about done watching the movie, is that the Criterion Blu-ray, I don't know if you noticed, Mike, has the linear cut of this movie. Like, you can watch this movie in order if you want, which I think is kind of cool. Have you done it that way or no? No, I actually have the, like, non-Criterion version of this that I got. Like, I'm so sorry to, to flaunt my wealth in front of you like this. I got it from, like, Tower Video before it closed, so, like, showing my age. All things must pass. But it has that cut on there. I did. It also has the commentary, but I didn't watch the... Uh, I've never seen this in chronological order. Because I feel like it would probably be, like, a little boring. Like, I think this is almost, like, too confusing in a way, but sort of almost good. Like, you know, what Chris said earlier, I think he makes you think but doesn't challenge you. I feel like this might be his most challenging movie. Maybe Memento. We'll see that when we do that the next episode. 
I want to change that. It's not that he doesn't challenge you. It's not that it's not like an aggressive challenging. Like he doesn't come at you like because I think that's bad wording. You can sit there and just take the movie in and be like, oh, cool. Like I saw a war movie. I saw a man shooting through space and and the guy punched a, a, a scarecrow man. Or you can like actually like take things away from them. You can go into them like it has both of those options and very few directors can balance that without making a mess. Because I did. I really liked and I, I, I think that the, the clarification probably makes sense, but I did like that it's it's like approachable philosophy in a way like not necessarily philosophy but like he's giving you something to think about I think it's kind of like I guess like the, the next level up from this might be like the Wachowskis or, or I mean I guess maybe not all the Wachowskis like maybe not Matrix Revolutions because that's like 401 level like that's difficult for even like for even like when John Brooks was breaking it down to us on the Keanu Club episode it was just like oh boy but I feel like, like you can just watch and see, like you said you know see a big guy dressed like a bat punching a scarecrow guy in the face or you can think about what things mean but I don't know like I really wonder if you could go deep 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 with these movies, and I'm sure people have, and we might on this podcast. I really did like how you described it, because it's not like he's trying to set out and make, like, Shane Carruth movies. Like, he's not making Primer, he's not making Upstream Collar, because he's in the movie-making business. Like, he wants to make a billion dollars with a movie, you know what I mean? Like, he he wants it to be seen by everybody, but also at the same time, he, he doesn't want to just make, like, a... Like, I enjoy almost every Marvel movie, but at the same time, like, I'm pretty much good not watching them more than once or twice, because it's like, oh, I get it. There's more to a lot of them, but for the most part, like, a lot of blockbusters are like, oh, that was fun, but I don't need to see it again. Here, there's just enough more, and it's well-made enough that it's like, oh, I would watch that again and again and again. He's like Carl Sagan, kind of. He's giving you these complex ideas and bringing them to the mainstream in a way that's extremely palatable, and someone who has much greater knowledge of these things can see it and be like, okay, or I guess they can see it and also be like, well, you know, but there, there's so much more that's missing. It's like, but you're getting these complex ideas to a mainstream audience, and I think that's difficult to do. Yeah, and I think with this particular film with following, I think it helps that he's aware it doesn't need to be an hour and a half or two hours or whatever, that he just uses the time he needs to tell this particular story. I like that instinct just right off the bat with him as a filmmaker. Later on, he's going to make some really long movies, but here he's just using what he needs to really get the job done. I think this movie is a bit of an anomaly, though, because it's like this zero-budget thing that he shot but still, I feel like even this is accessible. As complicated as he does get, I still feel like there's a moment or two where he makes sure that the audience isn't lost because he wants them, first and foremost, to be entertainment. Like, he wants you to come back and see his next movie. Well, he wants to be able to make a next movie, right? Like, we you mentioned Shane Carruth. Like, he's made two movies in how many right. years? Like, I love uh, his a films. A bunch. <laughs> yeah. But, like, you know, Christopher Nolan wants to make another one soon, and he wants people to come to it, you know? And they do. So there is something about that. I want to get to the bottom of that by the end of this run and stuff. It's like, what is that about him? that he is able to sort of talk to the audience in a way that isn't condescending and yep. isn't, you know, over their head and doesn't feel like he's necessarily holding their hand, but that he's sort of guiding them through what he's trying to explain. And uh, I, I like that. And I do want to compliment him like you did, that this is a movie of a good length. On the other hand, I don't know if you read this, but, you know, it, it cost $6,000, like Chris said. It was primarily financed by both him and his wife, who he went to film school with. Or, and he didn't go to film school. He went to just regular college with. And he, he just studied film sort of, I think, in his free time. The reason I think it's so short is because he was basically paying for the film stock, the 16mm film stock, with his own money. So they, like, rehearsed the hell out of this movie so that they could only do everything in, like, one or two takes, so that they didn't actually 
actually have to physically buy more film. So I think part of it is just economical storytelling, but the other part of it is like, I literally don't have money to make a longer movie. Like this movie has to be almost as short as possible. You know, something just hit me as we were talking about making art extremely accessible to anybody. When I was sick this these past couple of days and I was and I was lying in bed wishing I was dead. When I'm sick, I always watch Bob Ross. And I feel like this movie was like the opening of a Bob Ross episode where he's like, all right, um, get your palettes out. We've got titanium white and thalo blue and, and crimson. Oh, I just realized I have a new fetish. It is Chris Mattiello as Bob Ross <laughs> in my ears. That's just ASMR, though. I know, I know. But it's still, it's this very specific ASMR that's like really getting me going. This following, and I guess Doodlebug in some way, is like him laying out all of the tools that he's going to use over all of the things that he's going to make. Like, you can see little bits of, you see actually a lot of memento in here. I mean, he fucking steals the name Cobb from himself for Inception. You can just see all these little techniques and devices that he's going to, you know, kind of auto-cannibalize from, and it's going to become his trademarks throughout. And I thought that was really the most interesting thing about seeing Following Now, was less the film itself and seeing it as this jumping-off point for an auteur. Yeah, I think it's funny. The second and fourth viewing of this are my favorite. The second one, because after you see the movie and you know what happens and everything, going back to watching it a second time, I feel like it's really cool to pick up on all this stuff that you just aren't, you know, aren't paying attention. It's very prestige. It's like, you should be looking over here, but I have you looking over here. So watch this again. And then there's also lookalikes in this movie, which also made me think of prestige too. Yeah, there's so many call forwards instead of callbacks that we're going to be seeing. You mean Nolanections? There we go. Yeah, watching it this time, like, primarily, I was looking for that. Like, I was looking for, okay, what's on his mind way back here, his very first film, what's he trying to say, or what does he want to present? How does he want to present himself? What are his ideas and themes? And they're pretty much all here. Like, there's even, like, the, the guy Cobb is, like, a bit of a joker. You know what I mean? Like, he's halfway there. Like, this is a psychopath who is, like, imposing his philosophy on a guy to get him to do what he wants and has this whole master plan so up thing. So like that was really cool this time. The third time I don't really I didn't have I think I was just looking at it for style and stuff I don't really recall but like watching it this time the fourth time was a lot of fun. I remember watching this for the first time with my dad probably 5 or 6 years ago and being like, "Huh, okay." Like that sort of feels like the the guy that we know, but also at the same time like not really having the film language to really be able to dissect it in the way that I maybe could have or should have. I also don't know that this movie is incredibly deep. I think that there are a lot of glimpses at what's coming, and I do like Chris's metaphor of Bob Ross laying out the paints and the brushes, but I don't know that there's really a lot to analyze here. I think it's creative storytelling. I think it's well done. I think it's probably in black and white because it's cheaper to shoot. I just don't know how complex this is, which is also fine, because I think it works as a simple story of basically three people, or three and a half people maybe. Yeah, and I think it's a it's an interesting way to tell, like, sort of a common story of just, like, being pinned down as the wrong man, you know? Like, that is a very Hitchcock thing, too. Which also tied in directly to Unseen from the last episode of Cinemakers. Like, I was just like, there's a lot of sort of parallels there about kind of being wrongly accused in a way. Yeah, so, like, I think you're right. Like, I think he may have done that on purpose. It could have been part of the construction of this is, like, let me find, like, a very simple story that even if I tell it out of order, like, people are still going to be able to get the gist, and by the end, if they're sticking with me, they're going to have been able to follow it. Uh, so for me, this just feels more like sort of like a style piece almost in that way. I think Memento is his real debut, like, when it all sort of 
comes together tighter. Like it's this, but like refined. It's all this kind of simple story told in a complex manner. He, um, I watched a, I don't know, like a 20 minute interview with him on this film. And there weren't questions or anything like that. He basically just talked. And he didn't say almost anything about plot or character. He really only spoke of the techniques that he was developing and I guess how he paid for it a little bit. So I feel like even for him, this is kind of just like his tech project, even in some ways like um, in writing. And by writing, I mean like structure and scripting. I don't feel like even he... Look, either looking back or at the time was putting a ton of thought into like deep characterization and how can you with a 70 minute movie and especially when I think you know like Mike was just saying that there's so many characters that eventually wind up looking like each other that the characterization of one kind of becomes the characterization of another that like the young man is basically Cobb sort of by the end because that's what Cobb sort of you know he kind of pulls the prestige on him like he's just like you thought you were like learning from me but I'm actually framing you I feel like it's not only you don't have the time to really do characterization but it's also like it's intentionally not happening because like the character is you know sort of a Keanu Reeves like blank slate like I'm just willing like I'm just sort of like a weirdo creep and I am going to absorb this guy's personality because that's what I think is right in the world except he's just being manipulated by one or two levels above him yeah I think for me one of the stronger themes that was just shouting at me watching it was just about identity and yeah these characters are mostly just identified by look which is fine like Cobb has personality clearly but the young man which is what he's credited as and the lady I guess are pretty much just like defined by what they look like and then once the young man changes his look he loses his identity and so that's that's pretty much as deep as I was digging this round but I mean it's there and it's cool but you're right I don't feel like he's overtly concerned with that if you get that kind of stuff cool mostly this is like a gangster film or something you know it's like a very small scale crime movie and that's cool too because he doesn't he's not really going to get around to a lot of original crime I mean Batman's loaded with it but like we don't get a lot of this kind of stuff like a heist film kind of thing so that was kind of cool too it's like a extremely small scale burglar movie and what I like about this is that I don't know if either of you read this but it's like a very personal movie to him because he had his flat in London robbed and so he had this idea that was like I wonder what people think when they're going through my things like they're walking through my apartment and looking at my stuff and he kind of came up with the idea for this script and I'm about to pull a mic and get real real on here and just drop a, a little bit of a real life tidbit here but like my parents house was burglarized twice when I was living there and it's just like it's a weird feeling to know that somebody else you don't know was like going through your things sort of like assessing them and seeing like what had value and what they could take to make a quick buck to presumably buy drugs or whatever it's a weird feeling and i feel like you're supposed like between the score and just the editing and especially the first time that the the family comes home or the the first time that they break into an apartment and like the couple comes home it's just like, like everything about it is just supposed to make you be like oh i don't feel good watching this even though like we're in the protagonist's shoes and he's sort of like like he's just a creep to begin with it's unsettling yeah, it's got that a bit of that home invasion, right, feel to it in that instance especially, but the the whole issue of just invasion of privacy is is always unsettling to me when I see it in film. It's like I think that's why I don't uh, especially like home invasion horror films to that degree just because like don't like that sustained feeling for 90 minutes. I'd rather it come and go, but those movies really get to my core. 
Do we want to go general overview of plot for the listeners? Because I want to, while we were on the topic of Cobb, I wanted to kind of talk about how maybe the ending was my least favorite part of this, but I don't know if you want to jump right into it or if you want to give more context. Sure. So the plot is at its core that there's a guy who likes following people around. He's an author. He's got like writer's block. He's trying to draw some inspiration. He just starts following people around and sort of see their day-to-day life. Pretty early on, at least in terms of the movie, he gets hooked up with a criminal, uh, like a petty thief, a burglar, whatever, or we think it's just a petty thief, who realizes that this guy's been following him because he's in the business of crime himself. And he sort of takes this kid under his wing, and we later find out that there is this guy called, I think, the bald man or the bald guy, who was dating the blonde in here. And this is where I sort of lose the thread a little bit, but there's, there's basically a murder that's happened that they're trying to cover up, and the criminal is trying to frame the young guy, the writer, to say, like, there's other people with the same M.O. so that he can sort of get off, because I think he killed yeah. the body for the bald guy, and so, like, everybody's interconnected in these ways they don't really uncover until the end. It's like, oh, you know all these characters that you've been following in the movie? Well, they're all, like, way more related than you thought. Is that sort of, like, what bothered you or like what bothered you about the end no well they're all playing each other which is fine like this is a noir that's uh, it's it's i would say his most noir film um of all what bothered me was that come the end of the movie this Cobb character turns out was like essentially reading the script the whole time he just happened to have a copy of the script because he very deliberately like was a super criminal and like positioned every little aspect into place and it all worked out perfectly which just, you know, it was, it was a little deus ex machina, kind of heavy-handed in a lot of ways at the end. I mean, hey, it's the first, the first full script. I can't uh, be too upset about it, but it just, how everything turned out perfect, and this guy who was just a burglar suddenly became almost kind of like what Mike said, like the fucking Joker in the last five minutes. It was just, just kind of a real eye roll to me. For a movie that felt very grounded early on, I would have been happy if this ended after about 20 minutes, honestly. Yeah, I could see this actually working well as a short, something shorter, but... To me, what I actually had a little trouble with the ending, too, it wasn't that necessarily... I think I didn't really mind that he was like this grand architect supervillain at the end. I actually kind of find that a little charming about it. Uh, what bothered me was his like extra double cross when he ends up killing the blonde lady. I was like, oh, like I, you know, at this point, like just go to the airport or something and let's just see them fly away together because like you just didn't need to get that crass at the end for it just felt like no reason to me she ended up seeing her bosses or the bald guy bash some dude's head in with a hammer and so he was sent to kill her i was like well i didn't even really believe her when she was telling that story to the young man at the bar i thought that was all just part of the ruse in the first place so to even find out that that was the truth was i was kind of like oh that's a little simple but otherwise like everything was cool I'm not kind of surprised that this movie took a twist that I would say puts it in like a takes it down from being like interesting, just like, you know, kind of I would I would say following on its own without the context of Nolan and watching it in that way. Like this is kind of a bad movie. It has its charms, but it's not very good. But really every crime movie in like the post Tarantino era, until maybe like sometime around nine eleven and just after that, like is pretty terrible. It was a very dire time for just any kind of movie that wanted to deal with bad people. And at least this one was understated. This one was reserved. It was restrained, I guess is the best word for it. Until that ending where everything just turned into like, oh, it's just going to do some murders now. Uh, this guy's the Joker. And I, I felt a little betrayed by the movie and not in the way that like I think it wanted you to feel betrayed. 
Well, what I did really like about the very, very end is that Cobb gets away with it. Like, he just sort of, like, fades into the crowd, and he's sort of, the fact that he did sort of mastermind everything, I guess, to a T, whether he's reading the script or not, like, he gets away with it all, and it's kind of cool, but also really kind of depressing at the end, that just, you know, if you're really good at crime, you can get away with crime. I mean, it's a noir. It should end poorly. Uh, Yeah, I think people probably wanted to see crime films more in line with like ocean heists where everyone's having a good time and like mucking it up while they're robbing things you know like italian job for crying out loud or much worse you're getting the boondock saints around this time yeah exactly which is like oh man yeah i think you guys are right like this is it's not that i i mean i like it i think it's a good movie but yeah it's not necessarily concerned with being like a good crime film i think he's more concerned with just trying to like carve out like a first notch or something or get a foot in a door or something like there's almost more of like a student quality to this movie too in that way like while i'm watching it which is fine but there's just a lack of polish on sort of every edge of it that just it just doesn't have complete control yet i guess is what i'm getting at and he gets there a few times where you know dare i say down the line i might say he has made a perfect movie in his life but i just feel like for a first film this is really well executed like i think a lot of people you know on their third or fourth film might screw this up um would make this like extremely unwatchable four times enough i don't know if i'm ever going to watch it again but oh four times charm <laughs> yeah there you go but i would recommend it I think the most interesting thing about this is just like how it was kind of made was that the principal photography of the film took over a year because everybody who was making this movie had a full-time job. So they were only able to shoot on Saturdays and they basically shot like 15 minutes of actual footage each week for like four months. So it was like a very piecemeal kind of thing. Like I was saying, you know, they they rehearsed everything so much so they could, like, only shoot things once or twice. He couldn't afford professional lighting, so he used just regular, like, available light. And he wrote it, directed it, shot it himself, edited it, and I think also produced, like, he paid for it. So, like, he was, you know, not only like Soderbergh, but he's more like Robert Rodriguez. Like, he's doing everything here. I was impressed by the actors, considering the only one who has ever acted beyond this was uh, the the woman playing the blonde lady. The rest have really done nothing. I really thought that they all had really good chemistry, uh, especially the few scenes that Cobb had with the blonde lady I thought were um, actually quite charming for the most part when he wasn't about to bludgeon her to death. Yeah, I, I really like the Cobb guy, the guy who playing him. I think this is a really cool performance and everything. Like, the guy is a mental case, but, like, it's a really cool performance, I have to say. And and the uh, the other guy, the young man, like, what I liked about him, when he shaves and gets a haircut, I was like, the, especially the first time I watched it, when he shaves and get a haircut, I was like, oh, like, he's he's the guy they keep cutting to. Like, I this movie tricked me the first time I watched it. Like, they did a very good job casting a guy who looks drastically different when he's shaved in a haircut. I feel like that was a big thing he learned from Memento. It was like, oh, we're going to do some black and white in color now instead of just by facial hair. And I think that's why it works as well as it does out of order and why I don't know that it would work. Like, I'm kind of interested to watch it in order just to see, like, if it's boring. Because I feel like once if you see him as, like, the sort of grungy Tom York type for the most, like the first like half of the story or whatever. Then he cleans and shaves and like sort of, sort of now looks like Cobb. I don't think it would be as interesting. Yeah, I've never I've never seen it in order, like I said before, and I don't really have a desire to do that. I don't I don't know, because I agree with you. Like I feel like the structure helps sell the twists and turns and the reveals it creates it almost the structure almost creates the uh twists and turns whereas if this was told straightforward uh, i don't know that there wouldn't be felt like reveals like when he when this when we see this guy shave and cut his own hair 
it plays more like a reveal now as opposed to originally it'll just be like oh he's cutting his hair now or something but to me now it's like i felt more like i'm making a connection (laughs) but yeah i just think the structure is creating like the reveals and the twists and turns and what would just otherwise not play in a linear structure yeah oh yeah i gotta say i appreciate that this movie is called following and following barely plays any role in this movie outside of like the first three minutes because i i actually kind of would like to see the movie that this created in my head like when i read the the blurb initially just like a movie about someone who just got obsessed with like following people that didn't turn into like you know murder or something like that like every fucking movie does has to turn to murder at some point like i think that'd be really yep. interesting but this is like as following as like if the dark knight was called like boy falls in well like it's literally like it's just it's just a thing at the beginning that kickstarts everything, and I just uh, I don't know. I kind of appreciate that. Fuck <laughs> yeah, it, it's a good title. Roll with it. Yeah, it almost like a fire ass title, Joey would be like the follower, you know, mm, yeah. or something like that. Because mm-hmm. that's more of what it is. Is like he becomes a follower of Cobb. Like Cobb is the leader, he's the follower, and all that kind of thing. Well, I think it's also like about the like, are you able to follow the story too? Like it's sort of a meta title about the audience watching the movie, right? Mm, yeah. This movie won a couple of awards. It won the Tiger Award, whatever that is, at the Rottendam International Film Festival, and the Best First Feature at the San Francisco International Film Festival. I think it won maybe the Grand Jury Prize at Slamdance? So it wasn't like, it didn't win like major, major awards, but like it definitely got recognition. It was well-reviewed. Aside from like a few sort of negative reviews, people all admired how economical it was, how sort of gritty it was. I'm not a fan of Rotten Tomatoes, but it has like oh, almost yeah. an 80% of Rotten Tomatoes, which I feel like for a first movie, for a movie that costs $6,000 is really impressive. You know, especially, it's not like this was super long ago. Like this was 20 years ago. It wasn't $6,000 like in the 70s. You can't get a lot for, like I feel like it's maybe easier now to make a movie for $6,000 than it was 20 years. Like it feels like that's not much money at all. And he made it work. Yeah, when this movie isn't kind of playing out of its depth, I think it, it works pretty well. I think it's mostly good. It has a little trouble staying afloat because I just think he's trying to get everything out of his system or explore everything in his system. Like, I feel like he could have pulled back on a few things and maybe even gone a little bit shorter. Like, if this was a short film, that would have been fine, too. I'm not usually the trivia guy, but in the interview I was watching with him, he mentioned that it took so long for this to get edited and and printed and distributed and and just even not even distributed, just sent to film festivals and stuff, that by the time that it did and there were people who were interested in what he was doing, he had had, him and his brother had had the script to Memento already. So that anytime someone was like, hey, I like that, what do you want to do next? They were like, what do you ask? And they were able to just basically go straight into the pitch for that, which is pretty wild. Oh, wow. Well, I think that's what they say about screenwriting. Like, make sure that, like, before you, like, send your first script anywhere, like, make sure you have, like, two others so that if people like your shit, they're like, oh, I also have this and this. And, like, here's a cool movie that's going to one day star Guy Pierce. Here we go. Did you also notice that one of the apartments that they went into, instead of having an apartment number, it had the Batman logo on the door? I sure did. Yeah, that, that was the young man's apartment. He broke into his own apartment. I got a good chuckle out of that. You mentioned his brother, Jonathan Nolan, who I think created Westworld or like is like the showrunner or the executive producer on Westworld. He's very successful. Yeah, with his wife, I think, too. So they're like, yeah, they're these two brothers who work with their wife. Like, that's great. Christopher Nolan's wife is in this movie somewhere. Emma Thomas is in this movie. She's not the blonde. She's some other woman, but it's the only movie that she's ever been in of his. So she's got a really small part in this movie somewhere. I think she probably is just mostly a producer or whatever, but she's in here somewhere. The only other woman with a speaking line is the woman whose house they break into. 
Maybe it's her. I don't know. I don't know what she looks like. Or the waitress. Maybe it's her. I don't know. We were mentioning family. Obviously, we we know Jonathan Nolan, but he also has an older brother, Matthew Francis Nolan, which Wikipedia calls a convicted criminal. Oh, really? So there we go. The only interesting factoid I know about Christopher Nolan is, despite his British accent, he's American. Well, no, he's he's British and American. Okay, that's it. He's British, but uh, so his he was raised in UK, but his yeah. brother Jonathan was raised in America. So if you ever see interviews yeah. with them, like one has this heavy British accent, the other does not, and it's just like weird. <laughs> but <laughs> I read his wiki up to about this point, and he split time between like London and like somewhere in Illinois. Like it's a weird sort of mix there but it, he's he's a dual citizen so I guess he just was his formative years must have been in London that's really cool it's like a, kind of like a Richard Lester sort of sensibility where there's a guy who was an American but spent like primarily his entire career like in London or even like Kubrick to a degree too who lived in, in the UK but you know is considered an American filmmaker and such but it's always interesting to see their worldview, how they filter stuff Two little connections here. There's a bunch of trivia on IMDb that was like, oh, this will pop up later in a movie. Like, it was all sort of kind of boring. Uh, but two things that I liked more than an, uh, enough to keep in my document was that Cobb is also Di- Leonardo DiCaprio's last name, Inception. So it's a name that he reused. I don't know if he knows somebody in real life named Cobb or not, but uh, it's a name that'll pop up again. Quickly on the Cobb thing. So, like, every once in a while, like, especially when just one character has a last name, I tend to just, like, look up what if there's any meaning behind that. And in this sense... Cobb, I mean, is sort of like cobble, which is to like cobble something together from like stuff you have around and stuff. And so in a sense, Cobb is kind of, I guess he's kind of cobbling this all together with his resources, but there you go. I did notice the the kind of parallel, and this is almost probably certainly something I just drew out of searching for uh, any connection between the two Cobbs once I noticed that, but they do both have obsessions with like tiny trinkets in people's lives. Like that's the one thing that I saw there. Ooh. Oh yeah. There you go. The other connection that I, I read that I liked was that in both this movie and Memento and Insomnia, people use credit cards to try to break into locked rooms. So that's something that I guess he just keeps putting in movies, or at least put in his first three movies before Batman could just, you know, use bat tools to break into <laughs> bat locks. Oh, so you mean in this one he doesn't pull out the bat American Express card? Can't leave home without it. <laughs> you beat me to it. The only other thing that I want to say before we can talk about Doodlebug real quick is that Christopher Nolan started making films at age seven, borrowing his father's Super 8 camera and making short films with action figures. He loved 2001 A Space Odyssey and Star Wars, so I think it's very clear why he would go on to make Interstellar. Around the age of eight, he made a stop-motion animation homage to Star Wars called Space Wars, and his uncle worked for NASA on the guidance systems for the Apollo rockets, sent him some launch footage that he could use in his film, so like, that's pretty cool. And Christopher Nolan said that I refilmed them off the screen and cut them back in thinking no one would notice, which I guess is sort of a joke. From the age of 11, he wanted to be a professional filmmaker. He knew what he wanted early on and he went and did it. He went and got it. So, so Doodlebug. Doodlebug, I read the synopsis before I watched it. Oh, there's a synopsis? <laughs> yeah, right. What, what the hell does it even say? The synopsis is that a guy tries to smush a bug and then realizes it's a mini version of him. And I was like, that sounds cool. Yeah, it's not a synopsis. That's the movie. And then gets smushed by a giant version of himself. Yeah, that's three minutes. And then I watched it and I was like, 
oh, like it's very clearly a little person. Like I thought it might be like a bug, like a microscopic bug. And then there's like some reveal there, but it's like, no, it's just a guy. It's just him. I feel like the description of the actual short film is sort of more exciting than the short film itself, maybe? I actually laughed twice in these three minutes. So it got a reaction out of me, actually. I laughed when the guy leapt over the chair. And then the end I thought was kind of cute. Just the idea that there was a third giant version of him that crushed him afterwards. I don't know. There's a little kind of like levels of inception there going on. Other than that, I was just like, oh, this is like a super short student film and remind me of David Lynch a little bit. And then it was over. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you guys noticed this because it like I could only watch it in like a resolution that reminded me of like trying to download porn off of LimeWire in like 2001. (laughs) (laughs) But um, that was the same actor who played the young man in Following, yeah. Oh! Oh, it did not. That's cool. There are two other shorts. Originally, when we had the idea to do Christopher Nolan, we were going to do the first episode about his three short films. There was one called Tarantella and one called Larceny, but I think we're all pretty good at using the internet and like we cannot like these are gone from the internet they're not on this blu-ray that you know they're not on the criterion i think they're just hey they existed at one point one was in 89 when he was 19 years old <laughs> and one was in 96 and then he did doodlebug in 97 following in 98 so and then space wars when he was 11 so yep. I mean, you know, if they're not on the criterion release i feel like they're nowhere <laughs> My only note on Doodlebug was it felt very, um, this is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but in in a very literal sense to me, this felt Kafka-esque. Uh, it reminded me a lot of the, the metamorphosis in some ways, almost like a, a three-minute allegorical version of that, almost. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. It's a good call. I literally took no notes about Doodlebug. I was just like, oh, the, the description or the summary, I guess, was more exciting than the actual thing. With no resources at the time, I guess what he did with the effects at the end is probably pretty impressive. That's all I got. Yeah, I have no idea. Like, I don't know how to make movies, so I don't know. But yeah, cool. I like it. I also feel like I'm okay being sort of mean on this one because I'm going to basically gush effusive praise on eight of the next nine episodes. And so I can be a little rude here because it's just like, aside from Insomnia, which I didn't like the one time I saw it, which I, I think it's maybe the only one of his I don't own. Maybe I do own it. I don't know. I love all the rest of his movies. So like, I sort of have to get all the mean, you know, rude comments out of my system now because it's going to be a love fest from here on out pretty much for me. Yeah. And I, I would just almost want to say like, if uh, any of my comments down the line come across as like mean or stuff it's only because i'm like straining to think of bad things to say about him i guess i don't want it to sound like it's just heaping praise every minute of this podcast because i don't know if that'll be interesting so you know from time to time like i mean i'm just gonna have to reach and stretch and try and nitpick a few things here and there so this is just sort of like a future warning of, of that if it happens every time you're just you feel the need to insult christopher nolan or be mean to him and you can't think of anything from his films to really use just remember he's got a producer's credit on on um, Man of Steel. There you go. Yeah, but that's not his fault. Got a producer's credit on it. Who knows? Yeah, maybe semi-responsible for Zack Snyder in the first place being uh, over there, but... I'm looking forward to revisiting Insomnia because it is, at this point, the only one I've seen once and the one I do like the least. Yep. And it's his. It's a remake, too, so I might even go ahead and try and track down the original Norwegian version of Insomnia and, uh, you know, just see how Compast and Contrera a little bit, see how he does on a remake, how he, you know, makes it his own or something, but looking forward to that episode. I just kind of remember feeling like it was a paycheck movie and so, like, everything was already set up and he was just like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I could use a, a new kitchen. 
I'll, I'll work on this. Sure. I remember not hating it either. Like, it wasn't bad. So you said you hadn't seen that one. You hadn't seen Dunkirk, oh, and Interstellar. No, no, I, so it took me a long time to see all of these movies. I have never seen Dunkirk. I have seen all of the others, but have no recollection of Insomnia. And Memento, I only have recollections of loving it at, like, 14, 15. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, the only time I've ever seen Memento, I think, was when I was playing Halo 2 every day, and my friend was like, dude, you need to see Memento. Like, I feel like it's, <laughs> I feel like we watch it under the same exact pretense, and I was like, whoa, man, this blew my mind. Like, I remember, I still don't know why, but I remember finishing the movie as my parents are calling me down to dinner. I'm like, no, I can't come yet. I need to watch this movie. Like, my mind is being blown right now in, like, 2002, 2003, like, whatever, whatever is on DVD with, like, the really cool, and we'll talk about it next week, the case file. DVD, I was like, oh my god, like, I'm like, this is just the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I had that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, at the very least, even if I if I don't end up liking it as much as, or if it doesn't end up being as good as I remember, it still opened a door to, I just wanted, I wanted mindfuck movies, man, because I was like a teen, and that's, but like, that led me to some bad stuff, like Donnie Darko, but like, I also watched Mulholland Drive because I wanted stuff like that, and like, it opened the door to David Lynch, so, I mean, even if I end up not liking Memento that much, it'll still be a movie that I, um, I, I will have a soft spot for, I think, in, in the long term, just because of how many doors it opened for me at the right time. And that's all that matters. I really like the small cast, too, with, like, Guy Pearce, Carrie Ann Moss, and Joey Pants. Lenny! <laughs> yeah. I love his performance, and I'm looking forward to next episode. Cool. Well, any other thoughts about either following or Doodlebug or Christopher Nolan in general before we wrap up, close up shop, and then come back next week with Memento? I will never watch any of the cuts of the movies in their, uh, like, normal chronological order. This has one. Memento has one. Something else probably has one. I will never do it. Yeah. Oh, Memento does too? I wasn't aware of that. Oh, I'm not going to watch that either. Yeah, I, I will never watch any of those. I feel like that's like almost missing the point of what Nolan is trying to do. Well, for all things Cinemakers, including the entire run of Steven Soderbergh and Mike, my other podcast, and now and again, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. We have an email, we should have said it earlier at the top, cinemakers at cageclub.me. Let us know what you think about Christopher Nolan. Let us know what you think about following. Let us know what you think about past Cinemakers episodes. Whatever you want to say, we'll read it on air. Actually, don't email us, maybe, because we're recording these way in advance. Maybe if we get email, we'll do like an add-on segment. Don't email us or email us. I don't care. Cinemakers at cageclub.me. Just do your thing. I love you for listening. I don't want to read an email from someone who's going to get mad about our opinions on Christopher Nolan movies. Not going to lie. I know. If we're asking, I think it's almost like we're asking for it in that sense. Like, I think we're asking for it, you guys. <laughs> I would love, Joe and I beg for hate mail. We got hate mail on Zach Tag. That'll turn out to be love mail. Send us hate mail. Like, tell us why, like, we shouldn't love these movies. You're wrong, but... You know, Tobin, if you want to write in, I guess you could do that too. If you want to have a rebuttal or a commentary episode, I don't know. Whatever you want to do, cinemakers at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Chris Mapodcasts. Ooh, he's slowly morphing his last name, just like a Kafka-esque bug. And we'll see you next week on Cinemakers. Remake Dark Knight Rises, right? I was absolutely going to make that joke, too. Oh, God. Remake The Last Jedi. Oh, boy. Oh, that's a timely reference that's going to make zero sense whenever this comes out. Oh, uh, I don't care, do you? Uh, like yeah. That? What's the jacket say? We can also make the other Melania jacket. R.I.P. Charles Krautheimer or whatever. Let's just date this exactly to 10 p.m. on June 21st. I really don't care, do you? So, cool. Can't wait to see Jurassic World tomorrow. I know.